Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespoke Cast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespoke Cast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy BespokeCast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. Welcome to BespokeCast. This week, we are thrilled to have on a longtime friend of the firm, uh, someone who had helped Bespoke Investment Group quite a lot early on in its uh, history, a good friend of our co-founders, Paul Hickey and uh, Justin Walters. And we're just thrilled to have him this week. Charles Kirk is joining us to talk about how he views markets, how he sees the current U.S. equity market setting up, and to give us a little bit of insight into, into how his career has gone. So Charles, thanks so much for joining us. It's really great to have you today. Thank you, George. I really appreciate the opportunity and it's great to to get to know you guys. And uh, it's been a long and fruitful relationship that we've had and uh, for my members and for everyone concerned. So uh, keep up the good work. Well, we're really glad to, to hear that it's been a two-way street because uh, you've been very helpful as well. So uh, I, I think it'd be great to give people a little bit of background about, about what you do, uh, what you've done over the course of your career, and, and how that all started. So um, you originally got into markets long after you sort of did undergrad and started your professional career. So, so where did you start? Um, where did you go to college? I went to a, a college uh, named Cornell College in Mount Vernon, Iowa. It's a small uh, college there, and uh, I was studying both political science and philosophy. The idea was that eventually I would probably go to law school. Uh, from there, uh, once I graduated from there, and that was back in '93, uh, uh, my wife uh, uh, at the time we we got married right after college. We met in college, and. We moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, she started a teaching career, uh, being a high school Spanish teacher. And at that time, I got a job uh, working as a private investigator out of college just to pursue something, uh, working for a law firm and trying to get my idea of what I want to do for my career, the idea that uh, I would eventually become a lawyer and and go to law school, and that that was a good in-between period uh, for me to do that. So... Uh, I did that for about three years and uh, went to law school, graduated from law school. And uh, it was in that period between uh, really uh, starting our, our lives together back in, in the mid-90s uh, to the, through the period of the law school that uh, I became interested in the markets. Uh, my wife uh, and I were trying to save some money uh, for the idea that we would have uh, money for uh, home in the future and uh, for future security. And, you know, it, at the time, everyone was saying that you needed to uh, put money away and to invest in the markets. And yet uh, neither of us knew anything about the markets. So I just started studying and reading as much as I could. And it became kind of a side hobby and something that I was interested in. You know, I had a lot of time as being a private investigator uh, where you had time when you were doing research and and uh, on uh, people and companies, and so the the two were a good match for me, uh, and uh, I was able to basically translate the skills that I'd learned from private investigation over to uh, the world of investing. That's so funny. I mean, you you kind of think about a private investigator, the the archetype, right? Is the smoky uh, glass door at the end of the hallway, the frosted glass door, and you you walk in, and you know you've got the secretary and the and the private eye in the back. But in reality, a private investigators in in a modern legal context do something quite different. And I mean, uh, back in the 1990s isn't you know necessarily today, but but still, I think it holds that that a PI is is not sort of what you typically think um, from the archetype in the uh, early part of the 20th century. That's absolutely right. And in fact, the research I did were uh, primarily uh, computer driven. You know, I wasn't one of these people. uh, I was basically hired to track uh, very difficult people down. And so I would use a lot of different type of resources, some electronic and and otherwise. And so 
the skills that I developed and the research mechanism of trying to find what I was looking for uh, was uh, there was obviously a direct corollary with my interest in the markets at the time. So uh, per my plan, uh, you know, I used that period of time to save up enough money to go to law school. And I pursued that. And uh, it was really when I was in law school that I found myself much more interested in the markets uh, than I was in my law student, uh, my law study. And I really thought that, uh, you know, I could make a, a good career out of it. At least I wanted to. And uh, so this was back in the late 90s. And of course, I had a very easy market to deal with where it was very forgiving, unlike uh, what we have at the present day. You spent some time uh, in law school. You completed law school, um, but then didn't actually start a legal career. You just went straight into trading as a, as a full-time gig. I did. And in fact, I had several offers to, to work at, at, uh, at really a couple of really top law firms. And I was looking at my, uh, my statement from trading and I was comparing it to the offers. And I said to myself that, look, uh, I could do just as well trading on my own uh, than working for someone else. And even though my per- and my purpose of going into the legal field was to help people. I thought that I, there were other ways that I could I could go about it. And so, my father was very in- instrumental in this period of time because he had uh, fallen ill and he was hospitalized in my last year of law school. And so I was taking classes and I was visiting him out of state. And and uh, one of the things that he told me in our last conversation was to really pursue what you really, whatever your passion is, and to really uh, go and do that. Because if I, as long as you do what you're really interested in and uh, really passionate about, uh, the money will come. And uh, from, it was something that he had learned in his own career and uh, really made him, a uh, he thought, a very happy person as a result. And so taking that as my inspiration, I decided to go into the markets full time and and basically I convinced my wife and it took some doing frankly to say hey uh, you know I need a couple years uh, let's put a timeline on this and if I'm not profitable and I I don't do well in two years then I'll go back to being a lawyer and uh, fortunately she said I think that's a great idea and uh, so we we went from there and so this is uh, the late 1990s, obviously, um, you know, pretty friendly equity market, as you said, in the midst of with one blip in 1987, you know, basically one long bull run from the end of the 1970s, real interest rates high, um, that starts to turn around, interest rates starts to fall, um, big demographic tailwind, all sorts of stuff going on to drive the US equity markets to uh, really in, into a proper bubble. And that term gets thrown around, but but I think uh, unjustly in most cases. However, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, you know, first year of the new millennium, really was an equity market bubble. So, you know, it's interesting sort of hearing your story. If you heard this, uh, not knowing as I do that you had have had quite a consistent track record over the years. Beyond that, you would think, oh man, this is a recipe for failure, right? This is a guy who's, you know, quitting law school to you know roll the dice in the equity markets and they're you know just they go to this crazy height and then does he get out does he manage to you know preserve his capital when things turn around does he manage to get short um what what was the story there how did you manage to to not become you know sort of the the classic late 90s story of somebody who got too into the equity markets well honestly it was a it's kind of uh, an interesting story in the sense that uh, sometimes uh, the things that uh, work against us uh, when the markets are very uh, good and, and easy to deal with and trending higher as they were in the late 90s uh, are things that uh, work in your favor when things turn around. And so uh, I always had a more cur- conservative disposition just uh, from a sense that I never uh, dealt with a lot of leverage. I always pretty much traded within my means and, and in the sense that I approached the market in the sense that I would never put anything that I couldn't afford to lose in it. And uh, for that reason, when things turned around, I was in a pretty good position. My biggest mistake, frankly, back then was that I thought that 
a lot of things uh, could not hold their value and, and were in a bubble. And I was too early shorting. And so I had some very painful lessons in the sense of being correct in my view, but wrong in timing. And when you're wrong in your timing, you're purely wrong in the markets, particularly as a trader. And so that period of experience handling the difference, the change in the market conditions after then uh, enabled me to really uh, figure out uh, how to uh, put risk management as a top priority, even more so than I was uh, prior to that. And uh, it really helped. I, I think just in a sense of being uh, more conservative in essence, you know, I wasn't producing the numbers that some people that I knew at the time were, uh, but I was also trading within my own abilities or capacities at the time, and that and that helped me later on. So where do you think that came from? Because uh, that's obviously something you can't learn the first time you enter markets, at least, you know, hypothetically, I guess you could, but especially in that kind of backdrop, it seems unlikely you would have uh, learned that innately uh, through experience, or sorry, it seems unlikely that you would have learned that from experience in the markets, you know, starting so early on in your career. So where did that come from, that, that psychological view towards risk and that psychological view towards putting uh, you know, a percentage of your portfolio or a certain chunk of value at risk? Um, did that come from your upbringing? Did that come from your education? Is that something that just, you know, nature as opposed to nurture? Well, I think there's a combination. I think it absolutely went, uh, came from my upbringing. I, my parents, uh, came from very meager means. Uh, I was the first person in my family to go to college. Uh, and they always stressed uh, never going into debt, never expending anything that you don't already have. Uh, they believed in paying cash for everything, for example, never credit cards. And, you know, I think it was just always that sense that uh, you needed to always prepare for a rainy day because a rainy day was coming. Uh, was something that permeated throughout my early childhood. Uh, even though we did, my dad did very well in business, uh, it still was a concept that uh, was never far uh, beyond uh, being taught to me on a daily basis. Were they were they children of the Great Depression? Uh, they were not. Uh, they were, but they they lived uh, in an area in West Virginia, and my father at the time, uh, right out of high school, uh, was a coal miner, for example. And just it was just a very difficult time. It was not the time that you think uh, as it is now in the energy markets in the sense that, you know, people struggled and it was not uh, an easy upbringing for either of them. So they really uh, put all of their resources into me and my education and made sure that I had every opportunity that they never had. And uh, I always felt that that was something that I, I wanted to make absolutely sure that whatever I did in my life, that I would make them proud of, of it. And uh, that was always something that uh, losing money in the markets, uh, obviously, or, or gambling it away would have been completely against any of those principles. Right. And it's interesting, too, to distinguish between gambling away or losing money and losing too much money. Right. And there is no way to participate in a financial market, um, maybe barring a bank deposit or something like that. Uh, there's no way to participate in a financial market and not take on some kind of risk. You're never going to get every trade right. You're never going to get every allocation right. You can be very, very good and still have some some pretty significant uh, losses over the years, just in terms of your win percentage. Uh, one uh, sort of analysis I've heard of it is that, you know, the best guys in the world are only right 60% of the time. And the reason that they are the best guys in the world is not because they are right all the time, but because they, when they're wrong, it doesn't blow up their entire portfolio. Is that is that sort of one of the ways you think about risk management? Absolutely. I think uh, I've said as such uh, those very uh, statements that you just made. And and I think that uh, the key is that uh, when when you're right, obviously, you want to profit from being correctly positioned. Uh, but when you're wrong, you need to take steps uh, often to make sure that you don't let a little mistake become a much more magnified and more painful one. And, you know, we all learned that uh, the hard way and uh, through experience and, and painful uh, situations. You can do everything right in the markets and still be wrong uh, because there's that timing element. And the shorter 
term that you trade, the shorter your perspective, the more correct you're going to have to be right on that timing issue. Uh, whereas the longer you are involved, uh, the more time works into your favor. And so in a many areas, my, my perspective was going from long-term to short-term uh, to now, uh, later on, uh, currently, I, I'm more of a long-term position trader where I hold positions uh, from three months to a few years, at least as, a, as an objective goal while managing the risk when I'm wrong. And I'm wrong often. I think even that 60, 40% figure that you mentioned, uh, the traders that uh, I've watched that I've been privileged to coach and mentor and, and also be mentored from, I think that uh, number is more closer to 50-50 than it ever is 60-40, at least from personal experience. Sure. I just pulled that number off the top of my head. I mean, the, the, the significant thing there is that you're going to be wrong an awful lot. I mean, 40% of the time being dead wrong. If you're uh, shooting 40% from the free throw line in the NBA or something like that, you know, you'd be, you'd be in deep trouble. So I, I guess the point, the larger point being that the the, the sort of gospel of being correct all the time. There's a, there's a culture in the financial markets often of people wanting to always be right. And you see this all the time on Twitter or you see this all the time on trading floors, you know, guys getting into um, sort of measurement contests about who's right more often. Uh, very toxic because nobody is right enough that they are going to be, you know, able to lean on that without having an understanding of of the risk involved so um speaking specifically to um, just one more thing I oh would, sure I yeah point out there is i think that that does set a unreasonable expectation for the new trader and investor in the sense that they always have to be right and it uh it basically you know it will bring in another dimension into your approach to the markets when you're trading from beliefs and opinions rather than whatever the reality may be. And uh, so this is something that's extremely difficult to work from because people, they tend to use the markets as a way to show the world how intelligent they are. It's almost a ego-driven type of mechanism. Uh, and a lot of times, uh, unfortunately, people's pursuit in the markets are more to prove how correct they are than they are to make money. And this is something that we work with quite a bit uh, at the report and, and in my coaching to make sure that uh, there's a way not to do that. So just to keep a little bit of chronological consistency going here, we've now sort of worked up to the um, fall in the markets uh, starting in uh, the year 2000. 9-11 uh, happens. There's really just a brutal environment for uh, certainly for equity market bulls for a number of years through the sort of middle of the 2000s, the first decade of the uh, 19 or 21st century. Um, how how did you see the market in that time, and how did that sort of um, have an impact on your career? What sort of stuff were you doing then to to manage that that approach? Were you short a lot of the time, or were you simply doing different things with longs than you were when the markets were all sort of flying higher, no matter what happened? At that point, I think that uh, the main thing is that I had developed a core set of strategies that I was employing and uh, that led to my success and so i was struggling in a sense because the market had changed the conditions had changed and the strategies were not working the same way they were not being effective the same process that i had developed uh, through uh, testing and, and watching and development of what i was seeing in the markets each time uh, the, it basically the the rule book had changed and so I did what a lot of people do is I, I started changing what I was doing. I was uh, not only changing the types of things that I would trade, but the, the methods in which I would trade them. And I pretty much in this period of time made about as every mistake as you could make possible. All the things that they tell you not to do, I was doing. And so it, it was just a very painful but very important period of time for me development, uh, develop, uh, developmental wise, because I finally uh, realized that I didn't, number one, know as much as I thought I knew. And like most things, uh, I figured out that uh, really everything that I had learned uh, was uh, part of it being just a very consistent environment before and that things do change and that the market, the way that it uh, 
the way that it accepts and rewards certain types of trades changes uh, based on the entire market condition. And uh, so it, it took me to school, basically. I had to go back and relearn a lot of things that uh, because it was such a good market before that I never had the opportunity to do. And at some point in this time period, you also started to get a lot more active in terms of communication with other investors. You had a blog and a website that people could go to. You also started to write the Kirk Report, uh, which is still in production today. Uh, talk a little bit about how that process sort of evolved and how that not only um, you know was an interesting thing to do uh, you know as, as just a way to engage with the markets, but also helped your trading as well. You know, the, this process of doing the work, you know, figuring out the charts, figuring out the the screens, writing it down and explaining it, and then using that as a as a process for your own trading as well. Right, and I think this is a very instructive period because at the, at this time I was I was struggling as a trader. Uh, I had had great success almost. Uh, unbelievable success over the first five years of what I was doing. I never experienced a, a major, you know, period where I was underperforming the market and things were very easy. And then all of a sudden the, the rule book had changed. And so I started then going back and trying to look for help anywhere I could, I could find it. And so at that time, obviously things were getting uh, popular online through through blogs and through different resources. And I would basically, I was surprised by uh, how much bad information was out there and how much, so much of it was promotional. And you could tell uh, based on the experiences that I had that a lot of the advice and recommendations out there just were not working in the real world. If you had taken time to test some of the, the theories and trading strategies promoted by uh, some of the people uh, that were out there at the time, yeah, you just knew that something was wrong and, and missing. And so I felt, uh, again, uh, almost obligated in a sense that it was my uh, calling to make a point to try to correct some of those inefficiencies out there and to share at least some of the things that I had learned through the School of Hard Knocks, uh, but also to help others that were in the same position I was at the time uh, who were struggling to make sense of it all. And so uh, it was very helpful because uh, it helped me uh, stay on track and constantly uh, work on uh, improving in a period that uh, was tremendously difficult for me uh, professionally. So at this point, it would be great to talk a little bit about how you view the markets, your sort of framework for looking at them. Um, having looked through some of the recent editions of the Kirk Report, there's a lot of technicals. Uh, technicals seem to feature as the sort of primary thing you do. And I also know you do a ton of stock screening. So you're also looking for from things, uh, things at a, from a fundamental perspective. Can you sort of talk a little bit about how you got into technicals? Because it wouldn't be intuitive to me that that, that would be the first place people would go um, entering the markets and um, how your fundamental process fits into that as well. Because I know you do care about the underlying uh, attributes of the securities you're trading as well. Well, at the beginning, at the very beginning, I, I felt that chart reading, first of all, it wasn't really popular at the time because there was not the technology to to make it capable. You know, this is a period of time where you would get most of your investing information from the value line at the local library. Uh, and so I, I was trained from that sense at the early beginning to look for things that were value. And I studied Warren Buffett and and some of the great people like Ben Graham and, and their approaches. And so at that point, you know, I, I figured out that there were certain common ingredients that would lead to a strong company. So I, and from that period, uh, I learned that uh, there were things that you you basically look for, no matter what the market condition may be. Later on, I, I discovered that obviously what I thought was a strong company and, and maybe a wonderful company, the market may not agree at that particular time. And when you're trading on a short-term basis, you may have a very great company, but you may have a very poor performing stock. And, and those two uh, things don't match well with trading strategies, particularly ones that are short-term focused. 
which then brought in trying to figure out uh, what technicals and, and charting analysis would do for me. And what I basically discovered uh, in this process was that I could have a certain group of stocks that had strong underlying fundamentals based on screens and then look for specific chart patterns that indicated that the market was rewarding those particular companies at the time I was interested in being involved with them and when the position itself would fit well within the overall portfolio I was managing. So it was that sense of uh, making sure that I was looking at the right things uh, and trying to uh, make sure that the opportunity was fitting the timeline and its trade strategy that I was trying to do in that particular time horizon. And where you have difficulty in the markets is when you may have a great idea, but your time horizon may be different than that particular idea. And so the charting and my focus on the price action as priority really allowed me to do that. What are some of the fundamental characteristics you do look at in your screens? Are you able to share with us some of your favorite, obviously not all of them, but some of your favorite indicators of what you consider to be a good business, a good company that's going to succeed in any sort of normal market condition? Well, I, you know, I like strong uh, companies in a sense that are growing sales, uh, both on the top and the bottom line. Uh, they, their margins are increasing. Those are some things that I'm looking for. I'm looking for industry leadership. So in other words, companies that uh, essentially are outperforming all of their respective peers in some respect. And I'm also looking for companies that have some potential forward catalyst that's going to drive earnings uh, further. Because what we already know in the numbers is already discounted by the market. So you need to have some sort of underlying theme, uh, a new industry, a new product, a new area that's going to propel those fundamentals forward. And so those are all things that I'm looking for from a fundamental perspective. So just to summarize, are are you growing sales? Are you able to charge higher prices for that and therefore growing margins? And are is that going to be true going forward? Is there going to be a reason that's going to continue to be true? Correct. And I'm, I'm looking for the price action to basically confirm that thesis. So uh, the, the industry is growing, they're seeing expansion, there's money flow that's going into those sectors and the stocks respectively, and uh, there's investor interest uh, in the sense that there is that forward catalyst again. So moving on to the technicals, then uh, there's there's a number of different things that you look at. I know it would be great to sort of get your your top three sort of favorite indicators or favorite basic approaches. I know it's a lot more complicated than something just that simple, um, but just to give a like you just did with the fundamental side to give a basic overview of of how you look at technicals. Well, it's it. I think most people would look at my approach and say, well, that's that's pretty simple. There's got to be more to it. And a lot of people do that initially. And the reason for that being is that I use very clean charts. On my charts, you don't see a lot of indicators. What you do see is typical patterns that I've identified. So uh, from the overall sense of the technical patterns, I want the overall trend to be favorable to the particular trade that I'm looking at. So that trend uh, should be matching on multiple timeframes. So the more multiple timeframes that we have, uh, trending-wise, the better the position, depending on the market condition, obviously. You know, if, uh, if the market is in a situation, for example, after a long correction or pullback, things do change, and that, that rule book changes a little bit. But essentially, I'm looking for the overall trends being favorable to the particular trade. For instance, if you're looking at a long, you want to see a chart that's going up and to the right across, you know, daily, weekly, monthly, whatever the, the time frame is in question. I do. The exception would be as if we're changing the the, the overall trend. So, for example, uh, say, for example, in, in February uh, with the double bottom of 2015, we saw a lot of reversal patterns showing up one after another. And these were early reversal patterns. So in other words, they were like an inverse head and shoulders pattern, initial very small type of uh, a pattern that shows up, uh, usually indicating the potential for a trend change. And so from there, we would be interested in those plays because 
we would watch whether or not they would be successful or not. And then from there, develop bigger and bigger and larger plays, what I call secondary. So in other words, a typical pattern would be, say, for example, in the S&P, we had a double bottom. Uh, that is a reversal pattern, and that developed into a cup and handle. And then it develops from there. So what you want is to look for, if you're trying to catch a trend change, essentially are patterns that are working successfully and then further developing and pushing out those price targets. So for every pattern, in essence, that I look at, so whatever the pattern may be, I'm basically using the size of the pattern and, and using that as a target objective. So if you have, say, for example, 50-point pattern, I'm looking for a 50-point particular upside as a target objective on that pattern if the pattern is broken out and confirmed later on through a significant follow through. In other if, words, if we could just pause for a second. Yes. Uh, we listed a couple different uh, patterns there, and I'll just quickly give a brief audio description of each one. So a double bottom is the stock's stock or asset in question is going down, it bounces, it goes back down to the level it just did, and then it bounces again. Um, the idea being that there, there's significant support at that level and that people are going to start to come back in. A head and shoulders is uh, the, uh, it's, us it's used both as a bearish pattern and a bullish pattern, but it's, it's a reversal, as you said. So um, imagine a stock going down, uh, down to the right, uh, it rallies a little bit, it sells off big, makes a big low, rallies back up to where it had hit on the previous rally, sells again to where it um, a little bit lower, and then takes off to the upside. Um, so if you can imagine in your head a head and shoulders, very common technical pattern. And then the cup and handle, um, imagine again a stock going down, so down to the right, and then carves out a big rounded bottom, rallies, sells off a little bit, and then takes off again to the upside to make new highs and, and trend higher. Um, would you be able to talk about any one of those three, just the sort of the basic psychology a technical analyst is relying on in, in those patterns, what, what those patterns are sort of revealing about how the market is thinking, as it were? Sure. Basically, what you're trying to gauge as a, as a trader or an investor, you want to make sure that there's buyers that are interested in what you're looking at. And so the price action itself leaves a tell, and often they'll result in these patterns that people trade from. And so, for example, take, for example, the double bottom that occurred in 2015. You had a low that was hit in January. Uh, you had a bounce up to a particular level, and then you had a sell-off back to retest that area. And when that occurred, that test, a lot of people were looking for divergences in the price action. So in other words, they were looking for indications that uh, the need to sell uh, was uh, basically weighing on that second retest. And that's exactly what occurred at that bottom area before the bounce occurred uh, last year in 2015. So psychologically, what we're basically trying to gauge always is where are buyers headed? Where, what levels are they trying to defend or see as an opportunity? And where are they coming in at? And you know, basically, you're trying to piggyback what they're doing in the market. And so you're using these patterns to try to help you do that. Sorry, just to clarify, uh, double bottom, I believe you're referring to Q1 2016 as opposed to 2015? I'm sorry, yeah, 2016. Okay. Yeah, sorry. I'm already right. one year ahead. <laughs> yeah, I do the same thing. Every time the year rolls over, it takes me until at least February to not type in the year before. It it, it constant. Um, so <clears throat> I think that would be – thanks very much for that overview of, of sort of how – the, the pattern feeds into the psychology. Would you be able to talk a little bit about where the market is right now? I, one of the phrases that that popped up continually in some of the recent notes you sent out has been the idea of consolidation through time and price. What is consolidation? What is consolidation through time? And what is consolidation through price? Because I think these those these concepts aren't entirely intuitive, especially for someone that's not used to the idea of technical analysis. Right. Markets run for a while, as they have been. They rally. They try to price in good news and whatever the expectations are. And then there's gen generally a period of time in which the markets sit back and, and basically sort it all out. They try to figure out, is price justified where it is? Uh, you know, where is it headed in the, in the near term? In other words, what happens is that uh, a lot of things in rallies typically 
because the way that people are positioned, for example, particularly now with the use of ETFs, what happens is that people come to the market, they're, they're excited about a particular thing, whether it be politics or the environment, however it's changed, uh, maybe earnings, whatever it may be as the underlying catalyst. And what they'll do is that they'll, they'll just pour money into the market and often use these index funds to do so, or ETFs, if you will. And what happens as a result from that is the money goes to all of those positions, of course. But, uh, and, and that happens for a period of time, often many weeks at a time. Uh, recently, it's been like a, on a 14-week cycle, if you look at the, the way that the patterns have worked. And so on a 14-week cycle, that's, that all that money comes in and floods everything out there uh, in those positions. And then the market starts to go through a reassessment. They try to figure out, well, did everyone, everything that has rallied up, can its valuation be justified? Are, are the underlying fundamentals improving? And so you get a weeding out process, and often that's what a price consolidation or uh, consolidation general will occur. So in other words, uh, consolidation can come two ways in the market, either time or price. And time is obviously the one that is the most helpful or the most positive in the sense that uh, what it basically indicates is that investors are out there, uh, they've allowed markets to rally up, and they're not interested in selling. They're just kind of interested in seeing whether or not the prices will hold up. So there's not a lot of motivated sellers or profit taking that occurs. It's more of just holding positions and reassessment and trying to figure out which ones are justified or not. And that's kind of where we're at right now in the sense that the markets have rallied uh, quite substantially on the expectation that earnings will be strong. Uh, they're also rallied because of politics and the hope that uh, that's involving with the with the new administration over tax cuts and so forth. And so there's a lot of expectations priced into the market at this point. And now we're going to go through a period of time. And we've been doing this for really uh, since the last Fed meeting uh, in the sense of trying to figure out, uh, can it be justified? And so markets will often take a step back or just sit still and let price consolidate and allow the valuations uh, to catch up with the price. And that's what a price consolidation occurs. Now, typically price, uh, price consolidation or time consolidation occurs also after a particular pattern is played out. So for example, uh, we've been dealing with a lot of positive bullish patterns in the markets uh, for a while now. And one of the the most important patterns that I think uh, was basically a, a double bottom reversal. And if you look at the S&P 500 on a monthly time frame, and you used the two highs back at, at the year 2000 and 2007, uh, that and you draw basically a line across there, that's being the upper hand resistance that the market seen over that period of time. And you take the two bottoms, which occurred in uh, 2002 and 2009, and you draw a line between those two, and you basically have what resulted in is a sideways trading range. And a lot of people, like me, thought that that was a period of price consolidation, uh, and both price and time consolidation. So when prices moved above those levels uh, back in 2013, uh, the market was in breakout mode, and essentially we were able to get some price objectives as a result. So in other words, if we take the size of that pattern, we knew basically where those price objectives would be uh, further ahead. And so from a long-term target zone basis, uh, we basically were able to get two types of targets, a conservative target and an aggressive target based on the measured move area. So both... Uh, depending on how you did the calculation, those targets started at 2,337 uh, all the way up to 2,485. So right now, we're, uh, price has moved right in that target zone for the markets. Now, from that perspective, at least for mine and on a price action basis, it means that the market is most likely going to go through a period of price consolidation. Uh, so, and that could be through time or through price, but generally speaking, when you see that type of extension, you usually uh, see that type of 
price behavior. And, so, that's, and that's even uh, that, despite the fact that, you know, from 2015 through, um, or sorry, 2014 through earlier this year, we were basically in a giant sideways pattern for multiple years, right? We were. And in fact, right. And in, in fact, if you take a look at that price consolidation also on a shorter term basis, like what you're talking about there, that also provide a measurement of targets where we're at currently. So uh, in essence, if you were looking from the market from a big picture perspective, uh, we're right at those target levels. So it'll be very interesting. And where I'm most interested is what price does at this target zone. Does it uh, consolidate by trading sideways? Does it exceed those targets significantly, which is not unusual for it to occur? It, it could do that as well. Or does it price pull back. And so we don't know the answer to that. All we know is that those targets have been acquired. Uh, we're in the target zone now, and now we'll wait for price to tell us what the, the next move is going to be. And so that's basically uh, my big picture view right now. It's interesting, too, that that view is so undefinitive, right? I mean, you have just said that you don't know what's going to happen next, even though you had a really good idea or, you know, had a fairly good idea, at least, uh, what was going to happen from 2003 through or sorry, um, 2013 through roughly now. Uh, you're now at a point where, you know, I, I don't know, you know, you're able to say, I don't know. I, I think that's something that's really interesting too. how, how, and it gets back to this sort of binary, be right, be wrong approach that people right. take to markets where well, I have to it's, tell you. it's okay to say, you don't know. Well, I have to tell you at 2013, I would love to tell you that I knew exactly that the market was going to go up to 2,400, right? But I didn't know then. So if you had this conversation, if we could go back in time and we did this interview back at those levels, I would have basically told you the same thing. I would have said, look, we don't know what the market's going to do. We know the market is in breakout zone. We know that it's giving us target objectives uh, up at the 2400 area, but we don't know that price is going to go there. We never know for a certainty how the market's going to play out. We just have a particular scenario in mind, right? And then we look for price action to confirm or, or deny that or create a different scenario entirely. And so from my perspective, I try to keep my opinions out of it. I, I, I'm wrong a lot, right? And so I have to make sure that whatever I do in the markets, uh, at a bottom line basis, it's being justified for whatever the price action is providing. So I wish I could say, to just to correct you, George, that I was thinking the market would go up as high as it has uh, these past few years, but I didn't think that. I, I really thought at the time that, look, we're in a breakout zone. Uh, yes, the market could go up to those levels and achieve those, and we have to plan for that uh, possibility, but it's just one scenario. You know, the market, market could have very well turned exactly the opposite way, right? And it could have uh, trapped uh, the bullish investors and made a completely different pattern. And uh, the future is unknowable to anyone, even the best of us. And so I I'm always respect that, that period. No matter how much we learn about the markets, no matter what the markets have done in the past, the market can always choose to do its own thing. And so our job is to, to basically have several scenarios in mind uh, this being just one of them based on the price action and then wait for price to confirm or deny that those particular scenarios and then trade and be invested according with whatever the price is showing you. Yeah, no, I, I didn't mean to, to say that that uh, you had a definitive, you know, this is what's going to happen back in 2013. But right. everyone's got a process, right? And your process is is fairly well laid down. You know, you have a you have a very specific set of things that you're looking at, and even with that specific set of of inputs and the output you got, you're now saying, well, I don't know. You know, you you, you don't have the the guidepost that you did from 2013 and you're comfortable with that which is which is important because there you know i i see this all the time where it's just you look at something and you you have to say i don't know the answer to this you know i don't have any value added here here's a thing and it's a thing but i can't tell you how, what it means i can't tell you you know there's too much information in the world so um i, I just think that's really interesting to to hear from you too we still have a few bullish plays uh, on a shorter term basis beyond what I'm talking about from a uh, basically a big picture monthly multi-year basis, suggesting that the price could even move a little bit further higher up to that uh, 24, 85, 2500 area. 
uh, in the short term. We have the bullish plays in place for that to occur. The, the technical foundation has been laid for that. And so in contrary to any price action taking away from that uh, perspective, uh, our assumptions are is, is that the price will continue to move toward those targets. But from a bigger picture uh, view, a long-term basis, we're right in the target zone on a multi-year basis. And as a result, we're at a very interesting pivot for the market, where the markets it can do several different things. And our job is to really manage our risk until we can figure out that pathway. So then, you know, if you had to boil it down to a bottom line, it sounds like it would be fair to say, you know, we don't know what's going to happen next, but right now is not the time to have blinders on. If you're ever going to sort of think, okay, there's this, this could be a turning point one way or the other, start looking for signs, you know, bullish, bearish, we're agnostic, but start looking for signs as opposed to being married to a view one way or the other, because both outcomes are, are totally possible or an, a range of outcomes centered around those two are, are totally possible. Right. And anything's possible in the market. That's why really you work on your process. You know, if the key is that you have to have a process when you approach the market that uh, that works for you, that that makes sense of the world that we live in. And because I'm not a very intelligent person, I, I do know what my eyes tell me. And so I, I can measure price and I can identify patterns and I can identify targets. And so I try to get myself out of the way of those things. And as long as I have something to work with in that regard, then there's an opportunity to trade. And then I'll manage my risk when I'm wrong from that basis. So I never really trade a belief or an opinion. In fact, I try not to formulate those things. Uh, my job is to be observer first and foremost, and then try to manage my risk and take advantage of the opportunity that I see based upon that. Talking a little bit more about what you do outside of trading for your own account, you also serve as a as a mentor and as a uh, sort of a, a trainer, essentially for for uh, traders. Um, how, how did that come about, and and how does that work? You're you're out in Hawaii. Do do people come out to to visit you, or do you conduct sessions, um, you know, over the internet? Is it so easy to do these days? How how does that whole process work? Well, I've been working in. Uh... From the Kirk Report, a lot of people wanted me to do uh, some sort of newsletter and uh, try to expand it a little bit more to provide more one-on-one -on -one type of interaction with me. And uh, unfortunately, what because of the popularity of the Kirk Report at the time, uh, particularly after a few very high-profile high interviews that I had in the mainstream press and, and with all the the interest that blogs were at that time, uh, back really in the mid-2000s, so in the 2005-2006 time period, uh, the Kirk Report saw explosive growth uh, from a lot of different angles. And the, the problem with that is that when you're a one-person uh, operation, it becomes very difficult to have a membership base of, of 10,000 people. And as a result, I had an, I basically faced a dilemma. I could either hire a bunch of people, uh, I could join or team up with other people uh, that did similar things that I do, or stay independent and try to kind of weed it down. And so I've been in the process of basically trying to do what I can do and what I really love to do, and that is to trade and be involved in the markets the way that I am on an independent basis, and also uh, write the the weekly newsletter, which is essentially the research that I prepare on myself uh, for myself and uh, my activities in the market, and then I share that with my members. And then I also, the people who seek it out, who who face the same issues that I have, who come from uh, you know, similar types of perspectives, will often seek me out for additional help and perspective, and then I provide the coaching uh, to those, those folks who do so. And so uh, being in Hawaii, the, the, the great thing about uh, the Hawaii time zone difference is that uh, my uh, morning is a lot of people's afternoons and evenings, and so I can use that to my advantage and uh, be uh, in a place where I can help them uh, as best I can from uh, that perspective. And so we do Skype interviews. I use uh, a lot of different types of online messaging forums. 
Uh, I also do, and what I've been working on recently is creating what are called mastermind groups. These are people that I've coached in the past that I've basically put them together with other members uh, that uh, either come from similar backgrounds or, or work different, uh, similar types of strategies. Uh, and may be able to work together and, and help each other and provide a different resource uh, for them to work from. So the idea is that uh, we learn from other people and we learn from not only the mistakes in our activities, but it's very helpful to have other people to share our experiences with and uh, particularly on a more intimate basis. And that's what I try to do now. I will say as someone that is uh, still quite young, um, you know, I am 27 years old and I don't have the depth of experience that a lot of folks do in the market, but the ability to be in touch with people from all different realms of experience, all different frames of reference um, globally too, uh, through the internet, through all, all manner of different communication um, channels is just it, it's indescribable how much it helps you sort of see the bigger picture and learn things that you never would have been able to learn with just your own experiences in life um so i you know I, that that whole approach to helping each other and and helping yourself and helping the people that uh you talk to regularly uh you know working together it, it's actually ridiculous how much the internet helps with that i you know I, and whether it's you being able to be out there in hawaii and and facilitate with people across the united states so easily or um, us being able to conduct this interview i i, I think it sometimes helps to just step back and think wow this is pretty great like how how, how did we get so lucky <laughs> if you know what i mean absolutely no i absolutely agree and uh you know i think that uh uh, the idea is that uh, the the world is is such a much smaller place now than it ever was in the sense that uh, you know I do communicate with people that are uh, that uh, trade uh, futures in Japan for example and uh, and elsewhere and and the interesting thing is that uh, there are some commonalities though we in trading and and in the markets uh, there are things that all of us face uh, together at different stages of our cycle. And uh, no matter how much you learn, there's always more to learn. You know, I, I think uh, trading and, and the markets are very deceptive uh, to particularly new beginners in the sense that it's very easy to get involved. But the more you learn, the more you understand uh, that uh, how little you do know. And uh, uh, mentors and being coached by others as I have, I you know, it's such a valuable thing. You know, I've only become uh, particularly over the last uh, five years, uh, I've only become the trader and investor I am now because of those resources, being uh, serving as a coach, seeing the same issues that I've faced in others, even the same mistakes that I make today uh, being made by others helps me understand how to do better and how to uh, make my process uh, better and more effective. And that's would that would that then be your your best uh, piece of advice for someone that's just getting into markets now that's interested in a career in the financial industry or that's interested in trading for their own account uh, is is reaching out to people and and getting the broadest experience you can through through speaking to other folks? Absolutely. I think that you know I for a period of time when I started trading, i I made a habit of making sure that I wrote to one person every single day that I thought that could help me uh, learn something about the markets. And that process of making that is just as a daily goal of reaching out and, and communicating to someone new uh, really <clears throat> invited me and opened new doors uh, to me that allowed me to develop much more quickly than I would have otherwise. I would have never been able to develop uh, as quickly as I did without that type of interaction. And, the, you know, part of that is that, you know, we're all busy now, right? We have so many responsibilities. Uh, but uh, the key is that when you're, when you're asking people for advice and help is to try to figure out something that you can do for them. And so when I reached out to other people that I thought that could help me, uh, one of the things I always try to do is look for something I could do for them that would be helpful. It may be spotting a typo on their website or or something that I saw that, uh, that uh, introduced them to someone I knew. Uh, whatever it may be, 
that I could do to help them. And, and that's how you basically develop a, a network, a, a group of people that you can draw from and learn from. And, and frankly, the, the traders that do the best that I've seen are those that have a group, a, a mastermind group of three to five people that, they, that, that they've worked with for a lot of years and that they trust and can communicate and can kind of share their 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 stories with and uh, from different perspectives. And, and that's all part of it. You know, this is a, a very uh, independent game. You know, you can trade on your own. You can be isolated. But it's that part of uh, consulting and coaching with other people, not only serving, uh, being coached by others, but coaching. Uh, but coaching yourself is so important as part of that development process for everybody. And uh, the technology is there, obviously, for all of that to occur much more now than it ever has been. Uh, the downside is that there's so much out there. And, and uh, unfortunately, uh, there's uh, a lot of good stuff out there that a lot of people don't see uh, because, uh, you know, traders are... Uh, are a group of people that that work hard. They put a lot of effort into their strategies and what they do. And the ones that are good at it, uh, they they don't necessarily want to share it with other people uh, for fear that uh, that they would uh, be doing something a disservice to their own self. Even though, in essence, I've learned much more by sharing what I've done than I've ever kept uh, from from others. I, everything that I do, essentially, I, I share with other people. And I've always been benefited from that from that experience. My great grandmother, Blythe Perks, used to say, "Cast your bread upon the waters, and it shall be returned to you." So it, it sounds like that's something traders should be thinking about: casting their bread upon the waters and uh, and reaping the the bread that's returned to them in the future. Um, we just like to close out with a segment we do called "Trading Rich or Trading Cheap." So um, just a little word association. I'm going to throw a, throw something at you and see whether you think it's trading rich or trading cheap. You can expound a little bit if you want. You don't have to, but uh, we'll see what you have to say. So uh, you. Uh, moves to Atlanta right out of college. So I'm curious, uh, given your experience in the region, whether you think the Southeast is trading rich or trading cheap. I live in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, full disclosure. So uh, so watch what you say. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but trading rich or trading cheap, the Southeast. Oh, man, no idea. Honestly, absolutely no idea. I don't live there now. Have you not, have you not been back in, in a while? I have not. Already. Well, that's an easy one. Trading rich or trading cheap, ETF-based investing. And I say this as a distinction between uh, index investing and ETF-based investing, I, th I think they're different things, and I think they have a different impact on the market. Um, do you think ETF-based investing is uh, something that's going to grow in popularity and continue to gain market share um, dramatically, or do you think it's something that that is getting um, a little bit overhyped? I think from a big picture perspective, I'd have to say cheap, because I think that the movement toward uh, bas uh, basket type of asset allocations are just much more uh, manageable for most people. So this is not going to be something that goes away anytime soon. The question more recently is that people who have adopted very passive strategies, are they going to really uh, hold true to those strategies? Because you can publish the best strategy in the world, the best allocation in the world in the paper, uh, but most people will figure out some way to screw that up. Uh, because their own emotions and their opinions take a place. Their own risk tolerance may not match that strategy when the times turn against them or the conditions change. And so it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out, particularly the people who have kind of given up on stock picking, given up on investing, and have gone, uh, you know, the basically the robot type of portfolio route. Obviously, the low cost uh, the idea that you set it, forget it type of allocation is something that serves long-term investors very well and probably gives them the best chance of success uh, to some extent uh, if you can't be more active. But, uh, you know, I, I have to say I'm bullish on that. And I'm also I think that the, we're just really on the early initial stages of that. You have a really great quote that I, that I found online. The only thing that 90 percent plus of investors have to learn is passive portfolio management, um, how to match the market's overall performance. Um, I, I think something that gets under discussed is the fact that we have a lot of passive investors who don't necessarily know how to be passive investors. You know, the theory is one thing, but how do you hold your passive allocation when the S&P 500 is down 40% off a high? 
Right. Uh, Absolutely. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how that gets. I don't necessarily think it's the worst thing in the world and it's doomed to failure or anything like that, but it, I, it will be interesting to see from a behavioral perspective, as someone that looks at markets a lot, how that plays out the next time, and it will inevitably happen, that we have a, a large decline in U.S. equity prices. Um, the next one I'd throw at you, trading rich or trading cheap, something I know is near and dear to your heart, but has become less popular in the U.S. over the years, golf. Uh, that has to be overvalued on that one. You think so? I do. Yes, unfortunately. And why is that? Well, I think that the, the sport itself, it's been slow to really adapt to modern times. I think that, uh, the, the idea that you can spend four or five hours on the weekend away from your family playing golf is, is not something that uh, people are wanting to do. And I don't think it fits the modern lifestyle. There's just too much to do these days that uh, allow for that type of endeavor. Uh, it's unfortunate. I love golf, uh, you know, but uh, I do think that uh, unless they they figure out a way uh, to really bring people, and particularly the youth, back into the sport, it's going to be very difficult. I don't play golf myself, but it seems like in that the the, the uh, what you just described or that process that that definitely rings true to me. Um, I also sort of think about cricket, which has undergone a lot of changes over the last couple generations globally. You know, you used to the way cricket used to be played is that you would have these these all day matches, and that was sort of what you did. And and now cricket is is, is has adapted, and there's there's shorter match formats as well, and it's been able to preserve its popularity. It's not popular in the United States, obviously at all, but but around the world, it's still a wildly popular sport. So maybe that's a comparison that 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 could be drawn. Absolutely, and in fact, there have been a lot of. I think some of the advocates of the game, like Jack Nicholas, has even uh, they've spoken to the fact of doing you know three whole competitions or just uh, getting players out for a short period of time. But there's also another challenge, and that is that the sport is just very difficult. It's very challenging, and and uh, if you don't practice all the time and you don't have the time to devote to it, it it's just not a game that uh, provides a lot of pleasure to a lot of people, unfortunately. That, and, that, that rings true to my experience. I, I took a golf class in college, and it's a great game, but it's a game that requires enormous investments of, of time and depending on your commitment to a, maybe a slightly lesser degree money as well. And it's the sort of thing that, you know, if I was retired, I would probably golf every day. But, you know, I have stuff to do. <laughs> right, so. absolutely. And... I think that uh, in recent years, I've been taking up the sport called pickleball. I don't know if you've heard that. I played pickleball in gym class in high school. It's a, it's a fun little sport. It's uh, actually the fastest growing sport in the country. And it's it's funny because I enjoy the, the sport tremendously, even though I'm very poor at it. Uh, but it's a very social sport. I can play for an hour or two. It's aerobic, uh, particularly at the, the higher levels that I'm trying to be in, more involved in. And it's a, it's a very friendly, fun, easy game to play. And it's a game that you can play with, with all generations at the same time. And uh, I think that that was the appeal for golf for me is that not only you have the nature component and being out in some of the, the prettiest uh, spots in the entire world, but... Uh, you also had the the component of of, of companionship and, and friendship and, and so forth. And, and I think golf is missing that more and more. And that's why uh, sports like pickleball are, are taking up so much. And it's, you know, pickleball, I can go out and I can play for free. Uh, I can get uh, and uh, I can do it anytime. And it takes an hour at most. It can take just 30 minutes if I just have 30 minutes. And it's just a, a sport that I find I, I'm enjoying more and more. You heard it here first on Bespoke Cast. Pickleball is going to be the sport of the future. That's that's great. I, I I really did. I did play it in high school, and it was good fun. Sort of like squash or racquetball with some slight variations. I mean, it, it it's not the same as those sports, but similar idea. Racket sport, um, but much more accessible, as you said, than um, something like, for instance, tennis or you know, let alone something like golf. Um, that's that's great. I'll have to see if there are any uh, pickleball leagues nearby. Just go to the uh, Pickleball Association. You can search by zip code. Uh, it's uh, just go to, just look up Pickleball Association online. Uh, there is a search for places to play uh, by zip code, and they'll list them there for you. And a lot of times, many places will provide free instruction 
uh, for people that are interested in the game. And you can uh, obviously watch on YouTube and and so forth. But it's a it's a great way of getting out there, being social, having a sport, and, and getting some exercise. You know, a lot of people uh, that I played with, for example, a gentleman that uh, uh, he had uh, stage two diabetes, and since he's been playing pickleball over the past year, he's no longer on any type of insulin. And so these are things that, uh, you know, obviously promote a very active uh, lifestyle that everyone can do. And this is very important for everyone, including traders who are uh, at home or at, uh, at the office and stuck behind computers all the time. I know that feeling. Well, that's it for this week on Bespoke Cast. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Mr. Charles Kirk. His website is kirkreport.com. He's a phenomenal um student of the markets and someone that that's been very generous with his time to us here at bespoke uh it was great to talk to you charles thanks very much for joining us thank you george and uh best to everyone there at bespoke Thanks for joining us this week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Subscribers to our research receive access to the Bespoke Cast one week before public release, in addition to the wide range of reports, datasets, analysis, and commentary that we send out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2016, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources which Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.